NCM Podcast. Uh, I'm Dana Van Ostrand, and with me today is Mark DeYoung, um, the one and only. Uh, we're going through sermon notes, it's going on Mark's um, series on idolatry. We're talking about week two, um, titled, in some senses, The Idol of Community, and dives into a variety of things. Hello, Mark. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. It's awesome. great to be with you today. It's good to be with you as well. I think what we'll get started with, Mark, if you could just, obviously, people just go click on the sermon, go listen to this first. That is your window into this. But could you summarize a little bit of your sermon, what you talked about, etc.? Yeah, I I would say overall, um, yeah, just the idea of idolatry. Um, when we take really, really good gifts and make them ultimate things, um, they can become in that ultimate place, God-like things and therefore counterfeit gods. Um, yeah, so I was trying to maybe pick on some of the things that like are super good. So I actually like started making a list of just like, what are like, some of the best possible things, the best possible gifts, like what, what do students, what do we talk a lot about? And um, yeah, community does feel a little bit like a sacred cow. Um, and I think it's a good thing. Jesus built it. He calls us to it. Um, but yeah, like rightly ordered loves is important and um, defining community in the way that Christ embodied it, I think is really important. Um, and so I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe more than most for me personally, I feel like framed it really well in his book, Life Together. I'm a big fan of him. I'm a big fan of Life Together. I mean, I'm not crazy enough to name my dog after him or anything. That's that's like really crazy, but I'm a big fan. Um, sorry, Kristen. Uh, but, uh, but no, big fan uh, of him. And I, I just love that kind of simple image in his book. He talks about, like the shared space and the solitude space, or he calls it a day with others and a day um, alone, you know? And just, um, I think sometimes what we accidentally mean by community is this like endless, insatiable, no boundaries, constant togetherness. And in my own life, I think when I've probably pursued community with that posture, I've accidentally like tried to, derive things from people and community themselves or itself, um, that, that, that really, those things can only be met in God. Um, and, and so, um, for Dietrich and I think Jesus embodied, um, yeah, those solitude spaces are important. Just recognizing that, um, yeah, or, or the way, the way Dietrich talks about it is that you can sort of do violence um, to one or the other. You can you can take away from one or the other that we actually, when we come out of the quiet solitude and into community, we actually have something to like give in the form of gift. Mm. Um, and when we enter into solitude out of community, um, we're, we're, we're sort of fully, as we're seeing the mirrored image of God and others, and then we are image bearers as we go into solitude space with God. There's something about the way to which we're encountering our humanity and the greater collective, even in the solitude. And so he, he talks a lot about just the way that, that 
the the solitude and shared can like almost for lack of a better word like mutually enhance each other um and i think i think my worry for myself or for northwestern is that yeah we can like truncate reduce narrow in community is just constant together um and i think we accidentally um create something that it wasn't wasn't really meant to be um, or really not anchored in Christ. And so um, it doesn't mean that we can't be interdependent and doesn't mean that sometimes we're going to really need things of others or we're going to be needed by others. But if, if we are trying to find ultimate things in people, that whole being needed and needing others it's going to create this sort of vortex um, and it's going to feel good in the immediate, but like all all counterfeit gods, it's going to crush our hearts in the end. um, And we're going to be walking away disappointed. And so I've been reading a lot of um, like brother Lawrence and other monks of, of um, kind of the medieval era and um, guys that have spent a lot of time in quiet and a lot of time in solitude. And I think one of the things like Thomas Merton, and I know Josh, huge Thomas Merton guy and, and, you know, it, it seems like there's a common thread of just this idea of that the ethic of love, um, there's something really profound when we wrap our head around the idea that God doesn't have needs. Like he doesn't even like need our worship. He doesn't, he doesn't need, he's a God with no needs. Acts 17 talks about that. Paul says that. Um, but, but, the essence of God is love and and the essence of love for these monks and and others. There's something about gift in that place. And there's something about silence that connects us to gift. That love in its essence, isn't being needed and and being needy and that kind of, but it's, but it's encountering the other through gift and that the Trinity is gift. The Trinity is love and the essence of his love is gift. And like to just, walk out of solitude as someone who's fully received gift. And then therefore you can love out of gift. There's like a unconditional, no strings attached kind of freedom to that. So I was trying to kind of portray that a little bit in my sermon. I don't know how well I did, but that's, I would say that's kind of what, mm-hmm. what launched me um, into this sermon was like reading Merton and others and, and uh, St. Teresa of Avila and, and people like that and brother Lawrence. And then, thinking about the sacred cow of community and going, Oh, in my own life and in the campus's life, I just don't know if we get the amount of solitude that, that Jesus himself did, right? Luke five, often he would get, he would get away. There was a fabric, there was a rhythm to how he lived life in the solitude. Even, even he's got important stuff on, on, on his call, right? The son of God, he's got to take on the sin of the world. (laughs) And he starts off his ministry 40 days in solitude, you know, and I know that that's a mimic in Matthew to back to Moses and the 40 days in the wilderness and all those things, but um, still says something, you know, about our humanity, I think. So, um, so yeah, I think for our campus, I think we get like shared space, space with others, huge gift, right? I just don't know if we have that same like giddy, like, yes, you know, for the solitude space. And so hopefully it's kind of almost like a pendulum call. Like yeah, if we were like in a monastic community, maybe the call would almost be more towards shared space. But the reality is, is what we mean by community is probably a little too much on the, on the shared side. So trying to call that pendulum back to the kind of rhythm and balance that Jesus lived into. So 
Yeah, the uh, the pendulum was something I envisioned from the moment you were talking about the the two spaces with Bonhoeffer, the the pendulum swinging from solitude to shared, and mm. our operation within those spaces. I know for me, speaking from somebody who graduated from Northwestern in 2020, left, got married, new community, don't know anybody, forming new communities, and then coming back here, it's been a little jarring Mm. in some ways to be like, I am in all of these shared spaces all of the time. Mm. Where do I find the solitude? Mm. And so with that taste outside of here, I have been a little bit, I resonated with this deeply because I was like, I don't know where my mm. solitude's coming from. Mm. And so to, I think for us to acknowledge that, um, again, I think it, last week I talked about how a campus like ours um, rewards participation, it rewards involvement, and those are great things. But when they become the ultimate things for people, what does that create beyond college life, mm. faith, beyond college, et cetera. So I really appreciated this message and coming in that way. Um, Something I wanted to touch on, um, because you you actually, you started mentioning it here a little bit, um, and you talked about the idea of wilderness. Um, Wilderness is a biblical theme, as you are aware, but if you would speak a little bit more into the idea of wilderness as a biblical theme, the idea of wilderness, Jesus's maybe encounter with wilderness, silence, solitude, et cetera, because those words are very closely related in the text. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you would have anything to say into that. Yeah, I, I mean, Dina, I'd, I'd really love to hear maybe what was prompted for you. And sure. you've, I, I can even hear by your prompting that you thought deeply about it too. But um Uh, I, yeah, it, it's really interesting. The the you know I just made the so Jesus starts his his ministry in the wilderness, right? Um, Forty days, a mimic of the wilderness. Uh, Forty years, Moses and the people of God. Um, I heard a brilliant theologian once say that, you know, why in the world <laughs> did it take forty years? What was that about? What's God trying to teach us? What was He trying to teach that generation and show us? that that it wasn't just God's desire to get the people into the promised land. It was his desire to get the promised land into the people. And, and so there's, there's this notion of inheritance, like inheriting the promises of God. And there's, there's something about the daily manna of the wilderness, um, the, the provision of God, um, even the call to asceticism a little bit, right? Like Jesus says, hey, I'm the bridegroom. When my disciples are with me, they don't have to fast. But mm-hmm. he kind of assumes that fasting will be a regular part of the Christian's walk. In other words, just constant gorging of all that life gives us isn't actually for our greatest good. And so sometimes fasting or even wilderness or fasting from noise, right? Fasting from food, fasting, that there's something about the the daily manna of God in the wilderness place. And daily manna can come in a lot of different forms, but there's something about the simplicity that that the riches of encounter and the riches of the acknowledgement of how dependent we are on God, I think gets most loudly magnified in silence, um, gets in, in, in the wilderness silence, right? Like, 
And so I think wilderness can take on a lot of different contexts for us, but yeah, there's a lot of biblical um, directions we could go when we think about wilderness. I'll just say one quick one. Um, I'd love to hear what you think, Dana, is so uh, the burning bush, Moses encounters the burning bush in the wilderness. And it, and it actually, in the Hebrew language, it's sort of like the location of that, God showing up in this miraculous way before the 40 years into the wilderness, Moses encounters his, really his call in the wilderness that, that even the idea of um, getting into silence, sometimes I've heard it put that like vocation or call. It's like the world's greatest needs and your greatest passion and wherever those two things meet, like go. And I don't mind that. I, I really don't, but I do worry sometimes that um, the, the the way that we can find a sense of meaning and purpose by meeting others' needs sometimes can get more paramount than like the voice of God in our life. And sometimes I think it's easier to see the needs or encounter the need than it is to like hear that quiet wilderness voice of God. And I think for Jesus, frankly, he walked by a lot of needy people and didn't give them what they needed. Like there was still suffering. There was still death. There was still sick people there, but he, he, you know, it's like the gospel of John. He only did what the father in heaven, right? Like he only, he only did what he saw the father doing. And so there was this, this constant attunement of the Lord's voice. And so I just love like Moses, right? Like, uh, his, his, his voice, um, Moses, like attuning to the Lord's voice, the location in the Hebrew language is like the wilderness beyond the wilderness. The, 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 it's, it's getting at this idea of like, like the edge of the edge, the wilderness of the wilderness, the quiet of the quiet, like way the heck out there, you know? And, um, that that's the place where God encounters Moses. That's the place where deliverance is born out of the call that God has special purposes for this man, Moses. So I, I just think about that in my own life. I think about that in your guys' life. I think about that in the listeners' lives. Like, yeah, what, what, is that, what does that mean for us? What's the invitation in that? Um, so, but that's just yeah. one, one thing I'm riffing on a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think that really, I think that closely associates with what with what I came, what I was like ringing in my head in terms of the, the sense of like disorientation yeah, in good. some ways mm. and silence. Cause it also associated with me when you talked about sleep and there's this quote where you said, sleep is where all the co- complexities of being human are worked out. Mm. And I don't remember who said, which quote that came from. It's probably Andy Crouch. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so it sounds too smart for me. That's <laughs> definitely Crouch. Either way, the point being made that, you know, in, in silence, we take the disorientation of our experience of the, yeah, we take, we take all of that the complexities of what it means to be a human being following Jesus Christ and silence in that communion with God in that space where, yeah, even in sleep, like our brains are hashing out what all of that means for us and God being with us in the midst of that. So I just, I found that to be the connection point between like wilderness and disorientation 
and our physiological brain literally responding in such a fashion. Yeah, it's like, yeah, good. this is all being hammered out while we're sleeping. Like this must be a necessary part of the human experience. I I just found that deeply, deeply like baked into creation is this design for humanity. I thought it was beautiful. Um yeah, can I say something about that too? For sure, I think I, I want to tie together two words, power and vulnerability, that all that is happening to us while we sleep, the, kind of the apex of vulnerability and how powerfully God's at work or like the, the apex of vulnerability in the wilderness or disorientation, mm-hmm. the moments where we think we're on the edge of the edge, where we're like looking in the abyss Boom, God, you know, like what does Paul say? God's power is perfected in my weakness. Um, I just, and this kind of ties back to a little bit what we talked about last week of like me reading Henry Nouwen's last book, Adam, just like there's, there's something about the way the flow of God's power meets us in the humanity of, of, the, the vulnerability of our humanity and um, and even like being fully proximate, like like we talked about silence. We, you you kind of mentioned sleep, and then the last the place I ended was 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 space, like time and space. Like to be limited is to be vulnerable, to to not be omnipresent, to not be um, you know outside of. To, but like to live, to live in the vulnerable, like the the fullness of the moment too, is a vulnerable thing, and that somehow God is always like powerfully showing up in that. Like you know, the people were one accord in the Acts chapter one; they're fully here now and loving it, and 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 then the Spirit's power just falls into that. You know, so just yeah, just God's power, our vulnerability, the collision of those two. Um, it just, it, it feels like there's like gospel, um, kind of all in that, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So out of silence, um, I guess I, I kind of want to move into that articulation about space. <laughs> um, the, the idea that we are here and now, we are present to our now. I think there's a lot of different um, prep, there was a lot of different prepositions used in this set that I found very like, yeah, the, that all makes sense. Uh, that's a lot of things that we're present to. Uh, ourselves, to our now, to um, he, being here, like that, the sense of place that we're here, time, we're here now, um, and we are here now in ourselves and in our bodies. Um, it's very, it's a very incarnational mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I think something that maybe this is just a, this is maybe a theological musing, but I think it might help us move into how do we, where, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian tradition, the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son being Jesus, Jesus, obviously, we speak of as the example to of what it means to be human, like the 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 primary of primaries in that sense, uh, and this oneness with God that He keeps. Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is with Jesus t- 
taking silence in the space that he's operating in. With that, like, knowing that he had to take that silence, um, how, what, it, it makes me really hard to wrap my mind around mm. that Jesus is God. This is God with us. And God is saying, hey, I have to go, like, pray. <laughs> mm. Maybe I'm making a point. Maybe I, I maybe I'm asking a question. I'm just trying to sort out like this. Jesus, God, man, had to go pray to be with God, hmm. and that there's a maybe there's just a richness in that that we, we can settle in. I don't know, but the idea that we have to that that God Himself had to commune with God. Yeah, right, right, right. That like that's. That's bizarre do you to say like that. Yeah. Do you think we use like bizarre? Because I totally feel what you're feeling in the sense of like, is why that's so bizarre also showing us like our moment and how janked up we are? Like, like, in other words, if he just like opened up shop for a week straight and just started like baptizing, healing, casting out demons, and you just see like three years of just function— Right. We would go, yeah, that makes sense. Mm, right. Like, like in other words, like, is there something in the bizarreness of his communion that's actually revealing actually the bizarre, bizarreness of us, right? right? Like, but I hear you. Like, and, and I think maybe, yeah, I guess maybe what I get at, what that gets to is like our, our sense of, all right, so we live in, we live in hurry. We live in loudness. And Jesus operated without that, or not without, but in the midst of that, and operated at this without mind, without like needing to worry how much function there was, or without how much output Jesus was putting out. It was about communion with God, mm-hmm. and I think maybe this is just a recognition of how hard that might be, yeah, for us. In terms of we have we have outputs we're asked to you know put out on our papers we have work that we all have to do and i'm not trying to decry um yeah decry modern society how we all function but to provide any notion of asceticism in our world today is maybe the maybe the most countercultural thing one of the most countercultural things that we might take time for silence not outputting not producing not mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, that is a hard thing to deal with then. To loop this conversation back to our first one, and this is what I'm excited for in a couple of weeks, Dr. Alan Noble coming here, but I think he would say, connected to what we're talking about, Dana, is that what we suffer from right now is a false, false anthropology, a false vision and framework of what it means to be fully human, right? Like, so Dietrich says, Jesus didn't come to, to, eject us out of our humanity to become God. He actually came to make us more fully human. Um, And so the incarnation, Jesus, like the fullness of humanity and flesh. And so Jesus gives us perfect anthropology that confronts our false anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, is what is the framework of that anthropology? And that's what I'm just super jacked for, for Dr. Noble to help us kind of think about that well. Um, yeah, we've been kind of sold a false bill of goods. We've been sold a anthropology and it's so subtle and pervasive. It's the air we breathe, right? Like it's just, 
you know, um, fish out of water kind of, you know, we're not going to see it until we get out of that, the, the water itself. And, um, but yeah, super excited for, for Noble, but yeah, in his book, you are not your own, right? He's confronting the anthropology that he says it's this, that society says I am my own and I belong to myself. And, and he's quoting the Heidelberg, which you're not your own. You, you know, so it's just, even that notion of belonging, we long for it. And yet we sort of live outside of the very thing we long for, you know? Um, and speaking of living outside of what we long for, I think um, one thing that was in my, my sermon notes that I had to cut painfully that I wanted to, I wanted to, to mention, but I, I don't know if you, if you noticed, like I, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of belonging and what is behind belonging this idea of home. Right. And I think I even framed silent space and, and, and sleep as like, this is like a, it's a primary function of home. We sleep best in home. Like, you know, how many times I just, I just, the feeling of my own bed, right. Like we're most comfortably silent sometimes when we're most at home, right. Like, like home is a rich space to relax because it's, the space and time, the fullness of the, you know, our, our, like home is significant. And so I've been in the background of this whole series. I, I, I really do think idolatry and a sense of home have a lot to do with each other. Um, almost like false versions of home, you know, a false anthropology, a false vision of humanity. We're not even at home in our own embodied incarnate, um, you know, God indwelt through the Holy spirit right? Home or tabernacles, temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so the, the, uh, there's a guy named uh, uh, Jay Stringer who kind of tipped me off to something that the Heidelberg talks about. But the Heidelberg's so interesting because it starts off, you are not your own, you, you belong to Christ. But in the third Q&A of the Heidelberg, um, this reformed um, catechism, it talks about how sin makes you miserable. It makes you miserable that, and, and it's interesting because Noble uses that word actually, that a false anthropology will make you miserable. Um, that, that, that misery is the effect of a bad vision of humanity. Um, and the, so the Heidelberg was written in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, so it was written in the German language. And so um, it wasn't originally in English. And so we get the English word misery, but the, the German word that we get misery from is actually Aland. Um, and, and this, this word Aland with the original Heidelberg, that sin makes us Aland, it makes us miserable. Aland more literally means uh, to be, to be longing for your native land mm-hmm. or, or put a little differently, like there's a homesickness. Mm-hmm. And so misery for the word Aland, we, we, you know, the word Aland is really getting at that homesickness. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that, that, yeah, idols make us homesick. Um, God is home, you know, and how, how do we, how do we recognize, um, you know, the sense of home in the shared and in the solitude spaces? How do we recognize, um, this deep ache, you know, that like homesickness is such a funny thing. It's an elusive thing. I don't know how you felt in Florida, but like there's different seasons in my life. Um, 
where I felt homesick. Um, but then different seasons of my life where I felt profoundly at home, you know, whether it's at home in the moment, whether it's at home in the craziest solo moment with God Mm -hmm. or whether it's at home in community, but I've also felt homesick in the solo. I felt homesick when I'm with a ton of people that I actually deeply love. Like I remember one of the most jarring experiences for me was, I think it was 2016 election season that those holiday, those holiday gatherings, family I love, um, friends that I love, just like, I just didn't feel at home at all, you know? And it's just, it's just that ache is just really real. And it, I think it's also very revealing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it was a moment for me and I probably didn't catch it in the moment. It probably took me a while to like sober up to the fact that like there's idols, you know, it was, it was where that homesickness was ultimately coming from was, was things that got more fundamental places in my heart than God. Mm-hmm. Um, even good things like my own family, my own friends, and it's not their fault. It's, you know, it's, but, um, but yeah, Lon, I, I appreciate that, that, that homesickness, that misery, that, that, that's, that's what we get when, when idols are on the throne. Huh. Yeah. That, in that sense of, yeah, it kind of gets back at that sense of place too. Like when I think of the Israelites and the tabernacling of God, that outside of those, when they were in the wilderness, when they were in exile, they were experiencing this alond. That That is a, huh. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea and concept that we're working with inside of idols, idolatry. Um, what else did you have from your sermon that you might have had to cut and want to talk about more about? Yeah, there's this guy, um, Martin Laird. Um, he's at, I think it's Valparaiso. He's a, he's a priest, high church dude. He teaches me a lot. He wrote a wonderful book called Into the Silent Land. It's a guide for contemplation. Um, but he, he kind of riffs on this idea of home a little bit too. And in the framework of contemplation, I was going to maybe just uh, read a couple excerpts for you. Um, If I could find the right page. Yeah. Okay. I'll read just a couple of things. So he goes, the deeper reality of God is the ground of our being. Paradoxically, no one discovers the solitude of inner silence by oneself. God is our homeland. And then he goes on to quote Augustine. This is the homeland to which every spiritual pilgrim is constantly being called. They're being called home. From the noise that is around us to the joy, joys that are in silence, why do we rush about looking for a God who is here at home with us if all we want is to be with him? And so he talks about like in Christ, the joy that is silent is already within us. And a little later, um, he kind of goes on to say, um, yeah, what does every person have inside without needing to dig? God is the ground of our being and union with God is foundational to our humanity. Before I was formed, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah 1.5 says. 
And God still knows us in this way. As the psalmist sings, you know me through and through. Um, Oh, here we go. This is a good one too. He says, uh, yet we don't normally have much awareness of this most fundamental reality. We go off in search of what has or in search of what has from all eternity sought and found us. This setting off in the wrong direction sustains us, sustains a profound moral and intellectual ignorance whose fruit in a sense is alienation from God, from self and others. God is the ground of our innermost being, yet we skim along on the surface of life. The result is that our lives are rather like that of a deep sea fisherman who is fishing for minnows while standing on a whale. You were within me and I was outside myself, Augustine famously puts it. Fishing for minnows while standing on a whale. That's, that's big, right? Like, yeah. And this is, I, I mean, he, 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 he calls it the, the wild hawk of the mind. And I think that's what probably worries me the most, honestly, just that our, our digital era is reconditioning the way our brains are actually functioning. Um, and so it's scary to me as hard as it was to be silent throughout the history of humanity, not to say we got it worse and I'm throwing a pity party, party, but just my pastoral heart. Like I just, I don't know. I mean, if, if silence is the, just this deep wail, you know, this deep space of rest and communion with God. And if our brains are being re- rewired where we're just skimming over the surface of life, I just, yeah, I just, I just worry uh, about, um, just the deep interior life of the Christian. Um, and it's not that God's not inviting. Um, it's just that we're not, we're not going there. I love the way St. Teresa of Abla, she, she wrote this, this book about the crystal palace. And she talks about how the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian is sort of like, imagine this beautiful castle or palace and in it is this like common space and there's winter outside and there's this like warm fire and the Lord is right there at the warm fire. Um, but we're outside constantly frantically running around in the cold when God is sort of in the warmth of our inner being and just, yeah, God's more centered to us than we are to even ourselves. And what does it mean to, yeah, to encounter Christ and his, his spirit in that, in that way and in that place. So, I mean, it, it starts to get into some of the mystic stuff. And I know people, I don't know if listeners are hearing me right now and they're like, dude, you're a whack job universalist, Mark, you know, and, and just kind of, or that feels quote unquote liberal or, and I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack and I get that that, that there's, there's nuances there, but I do think that sometimes I wonder if in our modern evangelicalism, we've so reduced the goodness and good news of the gospel. And, and, and in our modern society, we just don't, I just don't, I don't even know if we have an imagination for the, what's actually real, you know, and I actually think C.S. Lewis was starting to try to, to crack at that, um, with, with all of his, sci-fi books and lying the witch in the wardrobe. And I mean, he was starting to say that like the wardrobe, right. As this is probably a more common reference for people, like 
there's a bigger reality going on mm. than than what's at face value. And I think I think that's what Martin Laird's talking about too. There's a whale we're yeah. standing on when we're fishing for minnows. Like there's a there's a there's a profoundly deep invitation. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think people need to be afraid of what I think some of the mystics and monks were Franciscans were were, were starting to scratch at. But yeah, I think something I to I think to bring us down a little bit into I'm going to share a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was at the men's retreat my sophomore year of college, and I'm somebody who's always been a doer. Um, I thought to be a Christian was to be a doer. You lead in different spaces. You talk in youth group settings. You are the one who's serving in all of these variety of capacities. And my freshman year of college, I had continued to try to do that in some ways in my sophomore year as well. And I had this moment at the men's retreat where we were sent off into like solitude time and it's freezing cold. Like it's January. (laughs) I went outside because I connect. I just have always found a freedom in nature. Mm. I would describe it as my experience with God. And so I have this moment where I'm sitting on this ice and I'm looking out and there's just trees in the background. There's nothing around me. I'm just sitting there. And I have been just like frantically praying and journaling to be like, what's that? God, where's my connection with you? I'm, I'm, I don't know who you are. And all of a sudden I stopped and I didn't say anything. Didn't really think anything. And I just like, I was like, Oh, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I spent just like 10 minutes like, no, it's like here. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and that sounds, again, that sounds very ethereal and a very like maybe mystic, but it was in that moment I realized it's not about doing. Mm -hmm. My, My walk with Christ isn't about doing. And so to get at maybe some of the things I would say, Mm -hmm. maybe in our modern evangelicalism that— or modern society as a whole that we just do and consume and act. And there are moments to just be. Mm-hmm. And I think you you actually mentioned it in your sermon as well, like um, that connection between um, bore, like boredom, but also just like the benefit of just slowing down unhurried, unfrustrated time and just being. Mm-hmm. And in that, we might encounter God as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think for college students on our campus, this might be an invitation. <laughs> uh, you, you, I think you extend that in your sermon, but I, this might continue to be an invitation of you don't have to say yes. You don't have to do all of the things. If you aren't just being with God, you might be missing out mm. and that might be, yeah, I don't know. That might be what we're, what we're going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mark, is there anything else that you want to add? Dude, I think that's a great way to land the plane. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was really, it was a beautiful example, Dana. And yeah, I think it, it lands the very, very thing that hopefully this thing is trying to invite students into, which is just, yeah presence communion dwell 
God is the ground of your being in Christ. It's good stuff. Amen.